0: Okay, make no mistake about it, I'm a Washita boy through and through. Despite this, today's episode of Unnatural Acts in the Natural State is about a haunting, or rather several hauntings from the Ozarks, which, if you didn't know, are the second best mountains in Arkansas. This story, of course, is about the Crescent Hotel in Eureka Springs. Now, anybody who knows about Arkansas knows that Eureka Springs is notorious for hauntings. It's kind of a magnet for spiritual activity. Even today, walking in downtown Eureka, it's littered with apothecaries and witchy shops, and you're sure to find a ghost tour or two. Above Eureka sits the notoriously haunted Crescent Hotel, from the spirits of negligent and fraudulent doctors to a kitty cat who maybe just never left. It's no wonder the Crescent is absolutely riddled with not only ghost stories, but real, morbid history, serving as possible historical evidence substantiating supernatural activity. This is the Crescent Hotel. Quote, America's most haunted hotel. Coming up on Unnatural Acts in the Natural State. Brought to you by Mike's Auto and Diesel. Give them a call at 479-234-9513. A maniac. A raving thing. cruel studying you. There is a fifth dimension. Beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow. Between science and superstition. And it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. We all go a little mad sometimes. This is. Unnatural Acts in the Natural State. Nope. Located in Carroll County in northwestern Arkansas, Eureka Springs was founded on Independence Day in 1879. It's honestly one of my favorite places in Arkansas. It's a Mecca for artists, writers, the religious community, and the LGBT community. It's also known for its 66-foot tall statue of Jesus that overlooks the mountains. Not to mention, despite being the inferior mountain range, the place is gorgeous. Its roots were planted in 1856 when Dr. Alva Jackson found what was called the quote, Basin Spring, which was a small spring on the side of the mountain. Some people claim that the native Osage called it a healing spring, but there isn't really a whole lot of evidence to back that up. Just don't bring it up to the gift shops there and you should be fine. There's actually a small park built around the original basin spring that you can still go visit today for free. Let me tell you, it's beautiful. The spring itself is kind of hard to see at night because you have to look down a large pipe that goes down, and the water is a little wimpy stream and kind of dirty, but the park is beautiful. Especially knowing the history of the place, it's really cool to be there. Dr. Alva Jackson's son had a condition called granular corneal dystrophy or eye granules. He brought his son to the basin, believing the supposedly magic water would heal his eye condition. He dipped his eyes into the water and, wouldn't you know it, his eyes were healed. Now of course this was because the water was magic. This has nothing at all to do with the water just being clean, unlike most of the water of that era, right? In any case, Dr. Jackson kept the water's mystical healing abilities under wraps and didn't start using the water to cure people until after the civil war started 4 years later. He established a small makeshift hospital inside of a cave, and I swear this is true, he used the water from that spring to treat his patients. And the crazy thing is, the water actually helped. It's incredible what clean drinking water can do for your health. Liver problems? Here, have some magic healing water that also just so happens to be totally clean and parasite-free to flush out your liver." Whether he knew that the water was just clean, or if he really thought the water was magic or not, he saw value in it and began to market it as such. In 1865, Dr. Jackson began marketing the water from the Basin Spring as Dr. Jackson's Eye Water, of course named after the story involving his son. At this point, people were steadily moving into Eureka. But it wasn't until 1879 when Arkansas Judge J.B. Saunders, who was a friend of Dr. Jackson's from nearby Berryville, Arkansas, began to tell everyone that the spring water had cured him of a crippling leg ailment. Judge Saunders, who was well known in northwest Arkansas, began touting the curative powers of the spring water and soon was promoting Eureka Springs throughout the region. People were now pouring into Eureka Springs. By the end of the year, some reports estimated that between residents and visitors, there were some 10,000 people at a given time in Eureka. Be it for the healing waters, or just the opportunity of a new place with not much other businesses, it was a good opportunity for maybe a baker or a blacksmith to set up shop for people. But with the new influx of people coming in, they needed a place to stay, be it temporary, and that's when the Crescent Hotel was founded. I want to be clear here. This isn't the only haunting in Eureka Springs. This isn't even the only haunted hotel. This place is haunted from head to toe though. Honestly, I can make an entirely new series about all of the hauntings, morbid history, and ghost stories about Eureka Springs. I'm honestly considering it. The Crescent Hotel is definitely at the top of the heap though, as far as Eureka Springs hauntings go. The Crescent Hotel was built in 1886 and was considered one of the most luxurious hotels in America at the time. It was designed in 1885 by the renowned architect Isaac Taylor, who would go on to design the St. Louis World's Fair in 1901. Planned to be a grand, luxury resort, it was built at a cost of $294,000, which is almost $8.5 million in today's money and it would capitalize on the town's reputation for Healing Springs. Immigrant laborers from Ireland were brought in to build it, particularly the stonework. According to local legend, one of those stonemasons, a man named Michael, fell to his death, landing in what is now room 218. Remember that, it's going to be a little important later. In 1902, the hotel was leased to the Frisco Railroad, but due to slow business during the winter months, the hotel became the Crescent College for Women. Originally, the college would function as a resort during the summer months and the college would take over during the slower winter months, but due to the gradual decline, the college would just completely take over eventually. This is where another prevalent horror story comes from. The story goes that one young woman fell, or maybe purposely leapt, to her death from the hotel balcony. The rumor is that she was pregnant and had committed suicide out of shame. Then in 1924, the school closed down as well and the building stood empty until 1930. Another school, this time a junior college, opened there but only managed to stay in business for four years. After that, it stood empty for three more years. Enter Norman Baker. According to Medium.com, Baker was born in Muscatine, Iowa, the youngest of ten children. He dropped out of high school his sophomore year and followed in his father's footsteps, becoming a machinist. But an encounter with a traveling mentalist show changed his life. After seeing the show, he recruited a troupe of performers and toured around the Midwest, where he performed as an illusionist and hypnotist. After a few years, his trope signed on with the lucrative theater on the vaudeville circuit. After a decade of touring, he married another performer and settled down back in Muscatine. He went back to being a machinist and inventor, patenting the caliophone, a kind of portable steam organ. He also had a mail order business. A correspondence art school, and other business ventures that made him quite a bit of money. The Caliophone alone earned him $200,000, which is over $3 million in today's money, in just a single year. Already a successful businessman, Baker saw the opportunity that radio broadcasting offered. So after some sweet talking with his Chamber of Commerce, and also some FCC fraud, Norman Baker founded his radio station, KTNT, which stood for Know the Naked Truth. Now this is where the guy gets a little weird, just bear with me. His radio station was immensely popular. He was a big supporter of the late President Hoover's campaign in 1928. He showed his support in his broadcasts and was even credited with quote, winning the Midwest for Hoover. So having a little backstory on Baker, you should know this by now. The guy was eccentric at best, a straight up raging lunatic at worst. During his broadcast, he would go off on these crazy conspiracy theory rants. Now, I love conspiracy theories, but I think we can all agree that anti-semitism is disgusting. But that was one of the things he ranted about. Along with this, he would go off about Catholicism, claimed fluoridated water and aluminum pots and pans were toxic, vaccinations were worthless or even poisonous, and just a plot by doctors to fleece people and that the government was covering these things up. I'd like to say that people no longer think like this, but hey, maybe there is something in the water. His anti-vax ranting even set off what is known as the quote, Cow War. During an outbreak of bovine tuberculosis in the Midwest, he claimed that the newly mandated TB testing of cattle was really a conspiracy theory by veterinarians. He claimed that the vets would falsify positive test results in order to steal, then sell, perfectly healthy cattle. He convinced enough ranchers of this through his radio station that they literally ran veterinarians out of town using violence and intimidation rather than submit their herds to TB testing. The governor had to send in the state militia to get this stopped. The governor had to stop this freaking psycho. Of all the things Baker propagated about and hated, the American Medical Association was at the top of that list. He frequently accused the AMA of having a cure for cancer, but keeping it secret so doctors could make more money on surgeries and radiation treatments. Baker then took it upon himself to start uh, healing people, if that's what you want to call it, marketing himself as a quote, self-taught healer. He started telling people that he could heal them. Most of the time, his healing involved old wives' tales, superstitions, and folk medicine. Then, in an effort to gain a quote, Education, he sought out the instructor of Dr. Ozias. Dr. Ozias was another quack doctor who claimed they could cure people's ailments with unsubstantiated methods. In 1929, Baker went to Ozias Cancer Clinic in Kansas City, Missouri. See, Dr. Ozias claimed he had something that nobody else had a cure for cancer. Unnatural Acts will be right back after this word from our sponsor. Hey man, do you have automotive problems? You gotta stop by Mike's Auto and Diesel at 918 Highway 71 South here in Mina. You know, the building with the wing mural on the side. Mike and Sarah Slay, that's right, their name is Slay, they're your go-to guys for all your automotive repair needs. Mike, a Texas transplant, started working on cars in 1970 in his dad's shop when he was only seven years old. He rebuilt his first motor when he was only 12. But just because he grew up in his dad's shop in Texas doesn't mean he doesn't know Mina. He's been coming here for years since he was a kid. Mike and Sarah Slay love Mina and the wonderful community here, and they're ready to work for you. He's an ASE certified master, senior L1 advanced level service technician. Now, I don't know what that means myself, but I think it means my man knows his stuff. They do everything from classic cars to modern cars, heavy equipment like tractors to small engines. If you can drive it, they can fix it. He also does stuff like AC and heating, electrical work, and even rebuilds carburetors, which nobody in MENA does. And he does it well, man. Man, are you tired of that six-week waiting time you got with other shops? Mike's Auto & Diesel does it in a day. So get on over there to Mike's Auto & Diesel at 918 Highway 71 South here in MENA. The shop with that big jacked-up car in the front and the angel wing mural on the side of the building. Give them a call at 479-234-9513. Again, that's 479 479- 234 234-9513. Check them out on Facebook at Mike's Auto and Diesel. And ask them about their Dogecoin and cryptocurrency. Man, they're crazy about that stuff. Mike's Auto and Diesel. They slay the competition. Eh? Hey yeah, you, you see what I did there? Cause their last name is Slay? I thought it was funny. Anyway, now back to the show. What this cure for cancer really was was a blend of corn silk, clover, ground watermelon seeds, and water. So Baker and Ozias chose five cancer patients to administer the cure to so they could report on their results. Shockingly, they all died. All five patients died. That's not how they reported it though. To the public's knowledge, every one of the patients miraculously recovered. Baker and Ozias saw it fit to perform live demonstrations of their whacked out medicine live on the air on KTNT. At one point, he even cut away part of one man's skull in front of a crowd of people, but he knew he needed more than just weekend crowds to demonstrate his, quote, cures to. So in December 1929, he opened the first Baker Institute in Muscatine, where he claimed he could cure everything from constipation to varicose veins to cancer. He staffed the hospital with chiropractors, osteopaths, and diploma mill MDs, calling them, quote, masters of their profession, and, of course, he promoted it heavily on kt and Now, kt and had been getting complaints since it first went on the air, but once he started hawking phony cures, the AMA, specifically Morris Fishbein, the editor of JAMA, began calling for an investigation, and the FTC soon obliged. In 1931, the FTC denied Baker a license renewal on the grounds of, quote, vulgarity, immorality, and indecency. That was the end of kt and Baker still had his newsletter and, of course, the Baker Institute. He had a newsletter that he was sending out to all of his listeners and his patients, if that's what you want to call them. And since Baker couldn't technically practice medicine, he had his, quote, real doctors do his bidding. He would charge his patients up to $1,000 per treatment. Injections with Ozias watermelon seed formula, which he began adding carbolic acid to, or else his own formula, which made up of equally parts alcohol, glycerin, and carbolic acid. Quick little fact about carbolic acid, that's a chemical that Nazis actually used to euthanize Jews. Sick stuff. I don't want to say that he's Nazi-esque, but the propaganda, the lying, the killing, I don't know. Anyway, he actually tried to sue the AMA and thanks to what came out at the trial, he was later charged with practicing medicine without a license. So he fled to Mexico, the border town of Nuevo Laredo to be exact. There he ran a 100,000 watt border blaster station, XENT, where he continued his propaganda, lying, and attacks against the medical establishment. He also, while still in Mexico, ran for governor of Iowa on the farm labor ticket, but he didn't even get on the ballot. However, in 1936, he was able to work out a deal with the state of Iowa, now run by a more sympathetic governor where he would serve 1 day in jail and pay a $1050 fine after his triumphant release he ran for senator and lost again no longer able to run a radio station or a cancer clinic failing as a politician baker decided to leave iowa for good he set his sights on some place where he could be back in business free from the burdensome government regulations he faced in iowa some place with fresh air and a healthful reputation. Fortunately for him, and unfortunately for us, Eureka Springs was just the place he was looking for. So, in 1937, Norman Baker bought the Crescent Hotel in Eureka Springs, Arkansas for $40,000, which is about $748,000 in today's money. You gotta remember, this was smack dab in the middle of the Great Depression. Eureka Springs heavily relied on the influx of tourism. but during that era, there weren't a whole lot of people who had enough money to just make a day trip out to Eureka to visit the springs. So he got the massive and lavish building for a steal. Baker planned to turn it into a radio station, pharmacy, and sanitarium. He promised the Chamber of Commerce that he would run a national ad campaign for his new hospital, which would all but guarantee a steady stream of visitors, also bringing in their money. The Chamber of Commerce was so thrilled by this that they actually threw Baker a welcoming dinner party, and the mayor himself was the MC. Despite his warm welcome by Eureka, there was some backlash to his arrival. One state representative lobbied for a congressional investigation into his claims, but he was apparently outvoted, and it was never looked into. It's hard to say exactly how much money Baker spent on the renovations to the Crescent, but it's said Baker spent some $50,000. He renovated the place. He painted the interior very flamboyant colors. He also spent several thousand dollars moving all of his staff along with 140 patients from the Baker Institute in Iowa to Eureka Springs. He also launched a $1 million ad campaign touting the fresh air and, quote, crystal healing waters of Eureka Springs. Like he had before, he promised desperate, sick people that his miracle cure would make them well again. People with cancer and a whole host of other diseases flocked to the Baker Cancer Hospital, many signing away their life savings in the process. Regardless of the disease they were suffering from, the treatments were the same injections with one of his two formulas four times a day, every day, except Sunday. The quote, doctors on Baker's staff would later testify that they jokingly referred to themselves as quote, machine guns, since they were giving so many injections in such a rapid succession. It wasn't long though before locals who worked at the Baker Cancer Hospital began noticing suspicious goings on. Soon after its opening, one entire wing was soundproofed and sealed off behind a door that was locked from the outside. It was labeled the psychiatric wing, and the patients who weren't getting any better were sent there. Another thing the local workforce noted, the patients were often declared, quote, cured even when they were clearly in worse shape than when they had checked in. It was later revealed that these patients would return home only to die within days. Some didn't even make it that far, they died on the train ride home. Rumors began to circulate among the locals that Baker was conducting medical experiments on patients in the basement morgue, that he was spiriting away diseased patients via tunnels to the crematorium in town. None of these rumors can be confirmed, and as a point of fact, there were no tunnels beneath the crescent. However, I can say, having visited Eureka Springs and taking a guided tour, there are tunnels there, and they were used for transporting corpses to the morgue. Look, I told you the place was creepy. 44 patients died at the Baker Cancer Hospital only 20 months into operation. Since these patients were already dying of fatal diseases like cancer, they weren't autopsied, and no investigation was conducted into their deaths. Though Norman Baker is often referred to as Dr. Norman Baker, I don't feel comfortable addressing him as such. Norman Baker literally manipulated hundreds of desperate patients into signing away their entire life savings, along with their lives only to be poisoned and possibly even experimented on, all the while trusting that Norman Baker was a doctor, their savior even. But in truth, he was a serial killer. Fortunately though, he was arrested. He was brought to justice for the crime of, you guessed it, mail fraud. In September of 1939, postal inspectors alleged that Baker had defrauded his victims, using his newsletter. Out of nearly $4 million, that's almost $78 million in today's money. He, along with two other, quote, doctors, were sentenced to three years in Leavenworth Prison. He was also ordered to pay a $4,000 fine. After an embezzlement scam, he tried to go back to Iowa to found another research center. His old town literally refused to allow him to set up. The city had straight up denied him. Listen, I don't know who you believe in, or even if you believe in a higher power, but if you do, use this as proof that whoever's up there has a sense of humor. In 1958, Norman Baker died at the age of 75 of liver cancer. That's right, after spending his life scamming and poisoning cancer patients, he himself died of cancer. Not only this, but he died in a sanatorium, undergoing the same treatments that he had condemned his entire life. So there it is, the history of the Crescent Hotel in Eureka Springs, Arkansas. The Crescent traded hands several times and had several people pour thousands of dollars into it. But while Norman Baker had died, the ghosts of his past still haunt the Crescent to this day, literally. The Crescent Hotel is touted as, quote, America's most haunted hotel, which, by the way, is not because of any empirical evidence. They literally trademarked the name. In the 1970s, Guests began reporting unexplained phenomena, mysterious vapors, ghostly figures, sounds coming from empty rooms, and objects being moved even though no one was around. Several paranormal researchers, including the popular sci-fi channel show Ghost Hunters, have visited the Crescent and claimed to have captured paranormal activity there. This makes sense, right? That many desperate souls going to the healing springs of the Ozark Mountains for promises made by a quack psychopath being poisoned and possibly tortured. By the way, though it's never been confirmed, I'm pretty sure all signs point to Baker torturing his patients. Besides his creepy psych ward, in 2019, a groundskeeper accidentally unearthed a cache of buried bottles containing human tissue. State archaeologists identified them as having been Baker's. You can actually still see the bottles, which are happily displayed in the Crescent Hotel in what was formerly used as the morgue. The dude was a few pennies short of a dollar, that's for sure it's really no wonder the place is so dang haunted. Other than those unnamed cancer patients, there are a few other prevalent ghostly apparitions that are often seen in the halls of the Crescent. One of them is actually the ghost of a cat. See, the Crescent is notorious for having a flurry of feline friends constantly hanging around. One of these was an orange tabby named Morris. He showed up one day in 1973 and just never left for 21 freaking years. This cat became such a fixture of the Crescent that he was referred to as, quote, the general manager. A local resident recalled Morris, saying, quote, This cat became the cat of not only the hotel, but also the community. During those years, no visit to the Crescent would be complete without a Morris lighting, or better yet, a chance to pet this hospitality icon. And since the Crescent was, and continues to be, the center for so much community activity, their cat became our cat. We loved it when we would see him enter and exit through a specially constructed kitty door. The portal was flanked on both interior and exterior sides by carpeted steps to allow ease of coming and going. Quote. When Morris died, more than 300 people attended his farewell ceremony held at the hotel. He has a whole headstone on the property, as well as a photo of him in the lobby. Not only that, but he even has a remembrance poem in the lobby, reading, In memory of Morris the resident cat at the Crescent Hotel. He filled his position exceedingly well. The general manager title he wore was printed right there on his own office door. He acted as greeter and sometimes as guide. Whatever his duties, he did them with pride. He chose his own hours and set his own pace. The guests were impressed with his manners and grace. Upstairs and down, he kept everything nice. They might have had ghosts, but they never had mice. Look, I'm just saying, I'm probably not gonna have a funeral that nice when I die. It's safe to say that Morris was well loved, and still is. If you go to the Crescent Hotel today, you may just have an encounter with him. It has been reported quite often by hotel guests, especially when they're seated in the lobby near Morris Pictorial Homage, that they have felt a cat rub up against their legs. Audio recordings by several paranormal investigators have captured his warm purr, which would make sense considering the history. Now. I'm pretty skeptical about ghost stories and stuff like this, but I really wanna believe this one. Like, I know that the recording was probably just another cat and the feeling of a cat rubbing up against your leg can be written off as anything, but it makes me really sad that the kitty passed away. So against my rational judgment, I'm choosing to believe that the cat is still there, warmly greeting visitors in the front lobby. Another prevalent ghost story is that of Michael, an Irish stonemason who worked on the building of the Crescent. Michael, whom I previously mentioned, fell off the very top of the building and hit a beam on the second floor, room 218. Room 218 is now known as Michael's room. Reports of paranormal activity in his room include hair pulling, pushing, scratching, whispering, things moving on their own, even reports of the shower curtain pulling open by itself though now you won't be able to experience that as they've replaced the curtains with sliding glass doors. Michael is also said to be fond of women. Room 218 is widely considered the most haunted room in the hotel, Michael being the most active spirit known of. You can still rent the room and stay in it actually, but it's hard to make reservations considering the popularity of the place. There are a ridiculously, honestly alarming amount of ghost stories from the Crescent Hotel. like. Those are just a couple. There's also the ghost of the also previously mentioned pregnant woman who attended the Crescent College for Women who jumped to her death out of shame and fear of persecution for having gotten pregnant out of wedlock. There's also the story of a three-year-old girl who fell through the banister on the third floor and hit the ornamental rail knob at the bottom floor. Her ghost too is said to roam the building. Oh, you thought that was it? Theodora, a cancer patient, is known to be seen fumbling for her keys outside room 419 as well as tidying up for guests when they leave the room. Brecky, a four-year-old child, of Richard and Mary Breckenridge Thompson, who died in the hotel due to complications from appendicitis. He has been seen throughout the hotel, often bouncing a ball. Dr. John Fremont Ellis, the hotel's in-house doctor circa the late 19th century, is most often seen, or his cherry pipe tobacco smelled, near his office which is now room 212, and the list goes on and on and on. That doesn't even scratch the surface of the amount of ghosts that are said to haunt the Crescent Hotel, especially the unnamed ones. Because of the sheer amount of recurring sightings and concurrent stories, I think it's enough to raise the eyebrow of even the most snobbish skeptic. But maybe you could take one of their several ghost tours and decide for yourself. Maybe even stay in one of the rooms mentioned. America's Most Haunted Hotel, trademarked for tourism or reputation through hellish experience. Hey, thanks for listening to Unnatural Acts in the Natural State. Be sure to follow us in other awesome shows on Facebook, Instagram, MySpace. Well, probably not in MySpace. But check us out. We're the Washtub Podcast. That's podcast plural. Also, be sure to check out the other amazing shows at thewashtubpodcast.com. That's, again, podcast plural. With an S. At the end of it. Someone should really look into that MySpace thing. Brought to you by Mike's Auto and Diesel. Give them a call at 479-234-9513. For research for this episode, I used Encyclopedia of EncyclopediaOfArkansas.net, EurekaSprings.com, CrescentHotel.com, and a YouTube video from Eclectic South, where he toured the hotel. I think the biggest resource for this episode was definitely the article written by Delaney R. Bartlett on Medium.com. I seriously couldn't have done this episode without their article, so God bless them. Links for my sources are, as always, in the description. Partial credit for this episode goes to, well, freaking everybody who told me to do it. Specifically, though, Corinne Branson, who went on a ghost tour with me in Eureka Springs and held my hand through the claustrophobia. Script written by and all audio production by myself, Trey Youngdahl. Check out my website, TreyYoungdahl.com. That's T-R-E-Y-Y-O-U-N-G-D-A-H-L dot com. Follow me on Facebook at Trey Youngdahl. Again, that's T-R-E-Y-Y-O-U-N-G-D-A-H-L. Keep the shameless plug going by following me on Instagram at Youngish.Trey. That's Y-O-U-N-G-I-S-H dot Trey. Thanks for listening, and remember to stay safe and stay spooky.